Well, greetings all of you. Hope everyone's feeling well today. You all look pretty good, in spite of the fact you're not eating or drinking. I don't have anything to announce today, I guess, uh, in particular, so we'll get right to where we are in Isaiah. You will recall, I'm sure, last week that we went through Isaiah 58 and discussed the proper reasons for a fast. This has been in here a long time. In fact, we've approached it fairly frequently. But I think that it's coming together in a way that we didn't quite know what to do with before. We have been given, I believe, information that is vital to the church today in terms of the Passover, the order of the service, as well as the Days of Unleavened Bread and the Passover service itself. Information that has basically not been understood by many in the church all these 70 years. And we are instructed here in verse 6 of chapter 58, is, it, is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? When there have been uh, church fasts called in the past, I'm thinking back over the decades, <clears throat> The fasts were called generally because we had a specific need. That is, Mr. Armstrong would say, we're in trouble financially, send money. Let's fast or call a church fast so that the income will improve. It was always, I, I won't say always, but generally when we had a need or someone was sick like Mrs. Armstrong when Loma died there in 67. A fast was called then because we needed an answer to prayer. And he addresses that, not that it's wrong to fast when there is sickness and need necessarily. Uh, we were fasting as a church for her and for him, so in that sense it was outgoing, but where the fast or the request for it generated was because he needed something from us and from God, particularly from God. And he addresses that in verses 3, 4, and 5, that our fasts generally have been selfish in one way or another. But that's not the tone of what we see in verse 6. God calls a fast to get rid of sin, to get rid of wrong things in our lives, uh, we've been told in Isaiah 52 to break the yoke of Babylon from off our neck. And this fast that God would call would be to break the yoke. The yoke of carnality, the yoke of the world, the yoke of Satan. And to get rid of the heavy burdens that we carry. Now that in one sense might be selfish. We want the burden off. I've seen horses who carried a burden all day sort of sigh when you undid the girth at the end of the day. Let the cinch off. 
and we have felt cinched and burdened. Now God is giving us a recipe here, if you will, for how to get rid of the burdens that we have been carrying, and particularly since 1986, with all of the confusion, the scattering, uh, the difficulties, difficulties with calendar is another thing that might come up. There's been much confusion over the last 20 years in terms of how do we calculate when God's holy days will be. And just that statement there would bother someone if they heard it who would say, you don't calculate it at all, you watch for the first crescent. But that in itself shows that there is confusion out there. The Hebrews calculate, many people calculate, those who keep first crescent even usually calculate most of them because they want to know about when it is anyhow, even if they're going to look for it. So there is a great deal of confusion, <clears throat> a great deal of stone throwing over the calendar. I have been intending to write an article on that for quite some time, several years, and just never seemed to buckle down and do it, and I think I'm beginning to understand now why. I do not believe it was quite time for it to be written. What good would it do for me to write just another article about the calendar? It has been examined from one end to the other, it seems, and you can read all kinds of different articles about it. In fact, I have read many articles, gone back over them in the past week or ten days. No one, it seems, comes up with answers that are satisfying to everyone. And I'm sure that until God does something, we cannot all be satisfied. But I think I finally understand the perspective from which it needs to become, to come from, to use a preposition at the end. This subject has to be addressed in a way and from a perspective that no one else so far has addressed it. It has to include why we have the problems we do, it has to include where they came from, and it has to include the ultimate answer and solution. But we have been under heavy burdens. There has been a lot of wickedness. There's been a lot of self-righteousness. There's been a lot of self-deception. There's been a lot of Laodiceanism in all of us. Uh, God is giving us a formula or a recipe to resolve these problems, to change things. Notice verse 7 now. Is it not to deal your bread to the hungry and that you bring the poor that are cast out to your house. When you see the naked, that you cover him, and that you hide not yourself from your own flesh. So the first part of a proper fast, and especially here at the end time, and we're getting near the end of Isaiah, and what we're reading about at the end of Isaiah is bringing us very near to the end of this age, as we shall see in the ensuing chapters. 
and what we have seen in the previous few chapters. God is talking here in chapter 54 and 55 about blessing, the return of the latter rains, and so on, and the final dealing with Satan and Babylon and this world system. So the context of Isaiah 58 is not just any old fast at any time, but the context is about this end time. And when Joel 2 and other places, which are talking about the oncoming day of the Lord, refer to a fast, it is in that context. So this is a special, purposeful fast that we are doing today. The purpose is to, number one, get rid of our problems, our burdens, our afflictions, our sins, so that we might be usable by God for his purposes instead of our own. Then the second reason for it is connected with the first, and that is that once we have resolved the problems in verse 6, we reach out and help others. Is it not to deal your bread to the hungry? Let's look at this from a spiritual standpoint. We are in a time of the famine of the word. It is becoming worse and worse as each month and year rolls by. And we are headed to the time in Amos 8 where he says the famine of the word will be so great that you can search from sea to sea and not find the truth being preached or be able to find the truth, the spiritual bread that you need. Now, I do believe that God has opened up and revealed some things that are very important to nourish the church at this end time and that are a key to blessings that have to return, that God says will return, but some things have to be straightened out first. Understanding the Passover and not walking all over the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the day that God set holy, instead of the one we thought he set holy, is truly important. This also has to do with the calendar and is interfaced with it. Even if we do understand the first day of unleavened bread is the high day, we need to get as close to the proper day to keep it on from a calendar standpoint as we can. And maybe that's another reason that the calendar is now just coming into perspective in a way that it needs to be written. Many papers have had bits and pieces, but putting it all together in a way that makes sense is something that needs yet to be done. And it doesn't need to be done in 600 pages. <clears throat> so we're at a point where we need to be dealing our bread to the poor. And then we bring the poor that are cast out to your house. Now, are not many, many people basically cast out today on their own, independent, frustrated, not knowing where to turn, or if they disagree with the organization or the ministry in it on something, they find themselves cast out. We're spiritually in this condition right now across the board in the church. And when you see the naked that you cover him, now that implies that we have found righteous garments ourselves 
and have something to put on someone we find spiritually naked. That is why, I believe, we have been sounding the alarm, crying aloud, focusing on overcoming, changing, and preparing the bride for the past over nine years. How can we, who were blind and naked, give anything to someone who is blind and naked? We can't. We must see and we must put on proper clothing in order to have clothing to give others. I'm speaking spiritually. I think God, over time, is answering this call through you. You are working. You are working at changing, growing, and overcoming. You are reading your Bible more than you did in years heretofore. You are seeking and searching. And I believe that God is beginning to reward the seeking and the searching with silver and gold, spiritually speaking. We are not deserving. We are not great. We are nothing. All Jacob is but a worm. And you and I amount to nothing. Even Paul, after years as an apostle, said, Oh, wretched man that I am. So if what God is giving us is indeed truly what he is giving us, it is not because of our righteousness. It's because of his righteousness, he tells us in chapter 54 of Isaiah. It is because we have been digging through the Bible, because he has shown grace and favor, and he's, uh, he's promised that if you seek, you will find. And we have been seeking, and he has been shown. Well, if we have found, if he has provided, then it is incumbent upon us to give our bread to the hungry, and bring the poor that are cast out into our house. We have sent out a letter with this information about the Passover. It's not the only thing that we have found that God has shown, but it is a key and a critical issue. We have sent about 200 packets as of Friday all around the world. That's not very many considering the amount of people God called out but we also have another email list, I think, that's been compiled, if I understand, around 500 names now, or 500 addresses. It's the last word I heard, anyway. And I'm waiting a little while yet until we have the website is up, but it has no information on it. I'm waiting for that information to be loaded up uh, so that if people do go to our website, seeing it on the letter, uh, there'll be something there. If there's nothing there, they may never go back. If there's something there, they may come back time and again to seek information. So we're only waiting now to get that loaded up and we'll fire this information out to hundreds of people. And we've invited them come to this house, this building, our property, to keep the Passover with us, if they wish. 
If we see them out there wandering, not knowing what to put on, and God has shown us what we need to put on and wear, then we should share that. And not deceive ourselves that we are okay and hide ourselves from our own flesh. That is what most tend to do. Most tend to say, we're righteous, we're Philadelphians, the rest of you are Laodiceans, you have a problem, and they're hiding their eyes from their own problems. We cannot afford to do that. We must, if we, do, if we reach out to help, it must be with humility and meekness and a true desire to help, not to say, we have it all, you should do what we say. That is the wrong approach. We should be so thankful, so grateful to God for what he has given us that we want to share it. Because without the love of God, the desire to give, to share, it means nothing, right? If you don't have love, you don't have anything. But with this comes an absolute promise. Verse 8. Then, when you fast in the right manner, at the right time, for the right reasons, then shall your light break forth as the morning, and your health shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the eternal shall gather you. That is a promise that goes with doing what I believe we have set our hand to do today. I hope that we will be praying even as we fast and as we go home after this service that we'll make a serious effort to talk to God about where he wants this information to go, that he will get it there. We are limited. We don't have many addresses of people in the church. We have addresses for quite a few organizations, and some of you had addresses, both email and physical addresses, for some that we could mail to. But it's a pitiful small amount in a way. How must Mr. Armstrong have felt years ago, realizing that there were billions of people on earth, and while he would brag about the population, population, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, I'm getting old I guess, the circulation of the plain truth, he would brag about it being up into the millions, three, four, five million, I think it finally might have gotten up around six. Sounds like a lot if you sort of cast aside the idea that there are billions of people on earth. Now, how many people are there who still have any understanding of God's truth and his ways on the planet today? I don't know, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 maybe. So, if we scrape together a thousand names and addresses, which we'll probably continue to increase it, it'll go out to probably a pretty good percentage of those, and there will be some who will hit the delete button the minute they see it, but there are some who will be curious and read, and they'll say, this is interesting, I think I'll forward it to my friends. And it could go very rapidly around the world in that way. Or there will be others who will hit the forward button and say, 
you got to read this. This is the stupidest thing I ever saw. But they'll still forward it. And some of those they forward it to will say, well, now, wait a minute. This is so stupid after all. I don't know how it will go. I do know from Scripture that it will not be, for the most part, well received. That I can tell you. That does not matter. What matters is that if God gave us good food, we need to be sharing it with others. And that's why we are fasting today. It's that we might give what we have to others. And having fasted all day, before the sun goes down tonight, I think it is incumbent upon us to go before our father and our elder brother and ask them to recognize what we are doing, not fasting for ourselves, but fasting to give and to share with others what he has given us. It has to flow through. The Spirit of God is not something that he can put in your head and you can keep and cuddle up with and feel warm with. The Spirit of God is something that has to flow outward. The Word of God is something that has to flow outward. So I believe we have reached the point that it is time to have an outward focus to those who are candidates for the, to be the Bride of Christ and share what we have been given. And with it come these promises. Verse 9, Then shall you call, and the Lord shall answer. You shall cry, and he shall say, Here I am. How many futile prayers have we given, passed up to God in the last 20 years? The confusion has remained. The separating and the scattering has remained. Healings have not happened in the way that we would like them to happen. We have had an awful lot of prayers that didn't seem to go anywhere but fell on a deaf ear. Haven't we? Haven't all the churches, us included? If you take away from you the midst, the midst of you the yoke and the putting forth of the finger and speaking vanity and pride. Don't point the finger at others and blame them and most have. You're all Laodiceans but me seems to be the approach most take. We cannot afford to stand up in self-righteousness. What we have has come from God. It's not something we generated. It's his word. And if you draw out your soul to the hungry, if you are willing to put forth effort and sacrifice for those who are hungry, so many, many say, I'm not being fed. We need to provide food for them. Draw out your soul to the hungry. In other words, make a diligent effort to take care of the hungry. Do whatever you can. There are many people who have donated money, clothes, food, medical supplies to the teeming millions in Southeast Asia who are suffering. And there was another earthquake of about 6.5 I heard last night. 
in Indonesia. Not nearly so damaging as the nine that came a few weeks ago. But there are people on a physical level and nations who are reaching out to those who are physically hungry and in need and in trouble. That is a good thing that they should do that. But we have a much higher calling and a more important calling before the people of God today, and that is to reach out to those who are spiritually starving to death. To help those who are physically starving or who are in need is something we should be aware of and do as we can. But people today are about to starve to death and die forever, eternally, spiritually, and ultimately physically in the lake of fire if they do not respond to God. If we have information that would help prevent that, we should be reaching out and sacrificing. You are sacrificing today by not eating and drinking that this effort might be made. That is where you start any kind of outreach, is crying out to God that the reach might reach someone, might help someone. If you draw out your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall your light rise out of obscurity and your darkness be as the noonday. Our problems will go away. Now isn't that what anyone who is giving sound counsel to people will say? Instead of being selfish and self-centered and dwelling on yourself and self-pity, if you will reach out to others and help and serve and give, your own problems will go away. It is more blessed to give than to receive. God says this is the way, if we want to resolve the problems we've been facing, to do it. And the Lord shall guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. We have a famine of the word in drought. Caterpillars and locusts, as Joel puts it, there is a famine of the word today. But God says he will satisfy us if we'll reach out. And make your bones fat, and you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. If you let it start flowing through you, it will keep flowing. It will keep going. That's the way God's way works. And then it talks about how they that shall be of you shall build the old waste places. In other words, you're starting something that will continue into the next generation and the next. If you do what God wants done. We heard in the sermonette today that we need to be doing the will of God. It seems that most people in the church today do not understand what God is doing right now. They don't understand his will and his purpose right now. And therefore they are milling in confusion and what work they are trying to do is not accomplishing much. It is vitally important that we understand through scripture what God's will is today. If you do this, you shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. 
Isn't that what has to be done at the end time? A restoration? A restoration of correct paths? A restoration of the right way? Herbert Armstrong restored a lot of truths, but we've lost the path of life. We've lost our direction. We're wandering around blindly as a church overall, all the churches, the greater church of God. Someone has to show the way. The path has to be restored. And those who do so will be called repairers of the breach. Fix the walls. We have to rebuild the temple. That is the purpose and the goal at the end is to build the temple. God has scattered it until it's almost to the point there is not one stone left upon another. And it's headed in that direction. And it will reach that. And out of the shambles and the destruction and the burning of the church, a new temple has to arise. And that's before Christ returns. Whose glory will be much greater than that which came before. And there will be old men who will be able to see and compare one to the other. That is what has to be done. So when those Jews left Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem and repair the walls and repair the temple, those deeds that they did in history were brought forward in Haggai and Zechariah and Isaiah and other places to the end time. And you and I have the commission today to fast for the right reasons, to obey God, to serve Him, and to be those who repair the breach and restore the paths to walk in, to build the latter temple. I do not know for sure that we would lead it. That is something God will resolve. But I do know from all these scriptures it is a job that must be done, and it is the key job to be done at the end time, Preparing the temple, preparing the bride, whichever analogy you use, restoring the vineyard, all those analogies fit the work at the end. To prepare a people for God. The only ones we can prepare ourselves, really. And as we prepare ourselves, change ourselves, and get ourselves ready, then if we learn some things in that process we should be able to help others in the process. That way we can be repairing the breach. When you go back to Ezra and Nehemiah and read Nehemiah about the wall, it talks about some who worked diligently, who really worked hard, and then how they all, when they were threatened from outside, didn't even change their clothes. But one would carry a sword to guard the one who was putting rocks in the wall and making mortar. So that half stood on guard, I believe it was, and half actually worked on the wall. But they worked so diligently to get it finished, and they did it in remarkable time. We are called upon to work diligently to redeem the time, I think may have even been read to us today in no, that's in, I guess that's in Thessalonians. It wasn't read there in Ephesians. Yeah, I think it is in Ephesians too. Redeem the time there in chapter 5. Don't let the time get away from us. We have work to do. We're going to build a wall, fill in the holes, 
and help people find bread and water. And then he turns to the Sabbath, very interestingly in verse 13, and says, get your foot off my Sabbath. We need to be sure that we are counting the Sabbath as holy time, that we use it and utilize it to turn to God, to spend time with him, to seek him. Yes, we can relax physically some, but we need to be sure that our attention turns to God. Now this is, I'm sure, talking about the weekly Sabbath, certainly. But in the context, I am not so sure, as I commented in passing last week, that the annual Sabbaths are not also very important. The calendar needs to be as right as possible, and we need to be sure we are keeping the right days holy in terms of the sequence of them. And that is never so truer than in terms of the first day of unleavened bread, which is Passover day. We all agree on that now. And others are having the information presented to them as it reaches them in the next few days. We need to get our foot off of Jesus Christ and keep holy that day that he suffered and died for us. Very important to do. Not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Isn't that what we were doing on Passover day? Working, eating, leavening, doing our own thing. Now this may be talking about the physical, I mean the weekly Sabbath, but the principle certainly does apply to the annual holy day that we overlooked and didn't even understand and be spurched, be fouled, and walked all over and it might be one of the keys to God unlocking blessing again to us. Then shall you delight yourself in the eternal, and I will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the eternal has spoken it. I took time to go back through this. I know we went through it last week, but I felt it important that we address it again today since it is the day that we called for a fast and emphasize what we're doing and why, so that we don't waste it. I do not like to go hungry. I do not like to go thirsty. Perhaps you do, but I doubt it. So if I am going to go without food and water, I want it to have some effect. I don't want to do it for no reason or for nothing or for no purpose. I want it to accomplish something. So I felt we should go back over this, and I wanted to encourage you, once this is over, we'll have several hours before sundown, to spend some time with our father and our elder brother and implore him to help us do what his will is. I believe that what we are doing is well within the bounds of his will. I believe it is something perhaps we are even commissioned to do. If you are given, you are to give it out. Freely you have received, freely give. That is the principle. So I believe that what we are doing is well within the will of God. And therefore, I think that we can pray in faith and in confidence 
and in full assurance that since we are within the parameters of his will, he will do what we are asking. The just shall live by faith. If we do not have faith and confidence in what we are doing, what good is it? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. I have prayed in my life a lot of prayers that were prayed in the attitude of, boy, I'd sure like to see this, I hope so. Probably won't happen, but maybe. I want us to be able to pray in full assurance that if we act within the will of God, we can expect good, positive results. By that I do not mean that I think that 90% of the church will accept what we are sending out. Good positive results might be persecution and criticism. Because God says that in the end time, when the latter temple is ready to be built, most will say it isn't time. When the two witnesses come on the scene, 90% of the church will deny them. Does that mean that their work is not going forth in faith with a positive purpose? No, it does not. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, all those fellows wrote prophecies that fell on deaf ears. God even told Ezekiel, they're so hard-headed they will not listen. But I will make your forehead like flint, very hard rock. So what they were preaching, what they were saying was well within the will of God. And it had the effect that God said it would have. They wanted to kill them. They stoned the prophets. If we preach that same message from those same prophets, they will want to stone us. That is a good thing. Perhaps I should explain that a little more. People throwing rocks at you does not always seem like a good thing. They stoned Stephen. I think that was a good thing. They killed Jesus Christ. I believe that was a good thing. You and I would never have salvation had they not. Stephen assured and guaranteed his salvation by standing up for the truth as the stones were flying at his body. And he will be in the kingdom of God. Those who endure to the end, those who do the job as God wants it done in the end, will ensure their salvation, whether men like them or not. And that is a good thing. So we may not get a great deal of positive reaction. What about King Hezekiah? He was the king. And he sent messengers all over Israel to say, we've never kept the Passover. 
since when in the right way as it is written. And they nearly all laughed him to scorn and make jokes about it. But when it was all said and done, a great congregation did come to Jerusalem and did keep it in the right way. But you have to start somewhere, don't you? If you're going to accomplish anything, you have to start somewhere. There are a lot of dreamers, a lot of fantasizers in the world who have all kinds of ideas of things that they are going to do. But in most cases, they spend their lives dreaming and never do anything. That is the common situation. Now you have to have a vision, you have to have a dream, you have to have a goal and a purpose, but you have to do something about it. The goal, the purpose, the dream means nothing unless you actually start to work and make it happen. God is not looking for hearers of the word but doers who will hear and make it happen. We are here to make something happen. God did not call us into his church to do nothing. He wants people who will make something happen. Let's make something happen. Even if most of it's negative, let's make it happen. I'm excited about what we have learned, and I'm excited about getting it out there. If we don't get it out there, then their blood could be on our head. If God gave us something and we get it out there and they deny it, then the blood's on their head, not ours. So let's make it happen. I don't want their blood on my head, and I would love to be a part of helping take the blood off their head so that they do not have to die, and some will respond positively. Now let's go on to chapter 59. He said if we'll do this thing right, he will begin to listen to us again. Now he gives an overall warning, he gives an all overall assessment of the world at large and the church at large of the situation we find ourselves in the end time where the world is departed from God and the, and the church is quickly departing from God. Behold, <clears throat> the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Do you think God's hand shrunk and that he has no more power anymore to reach out and save? <clears throat> no, that hasn't happened. Neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Has his ear just gotten so heavy and he's so tired that he's buried it in a pillow and he can't hear our prayers? No, that hasn't happened either. What's the problem then? God is still there. God is still just as capable as he ever was. He who moved the Red Sea apart and marched Israel through. He who banked up the Jordan and stopped the water from flowing so they could walk on dry land is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't grown old and weak. 
So what's the problem? Why aren't we seeing that kind of deliverance today? What's the problem? Verse 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. There is a breach, a separation between us and God. We've been told, chapter 58, how to repair the breach and who it would be that would do that. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. That's why we do not get the kind of answers to prayers that we want. God lays it out very simply here. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perverseness. In other words, you've been human. You've given in to your carnal natures, your normal pattern and way of thinking, and live the way you want to live as opposed to living the way God wants you to live. Didn't he say in chapter 58... They will be repairers of the breaches and the restorer of paths to walk in. We have not walked according to the way God wants us to walk. Now how did Christ term it? Broad is the way, easy is the road to destruction. Narrow, rugged, and rutty, steep, and difficult is the way to life. We have floated along with this world, headed into the morass of sin and iniquity. We have been friends with the world. <coughs> Mr. Armstrong tried to become buddies with the world. That could not have pleased God. He did a lot for God's people, Mr. Armstrong did. But he got into some things that led us in a direction we should not have gone. And we began to go more and more the way of the world. In the early days, he tried to get us to repair, improve our diets, our way of living. And then we slowly drifted back to the way of the world. Now we're fighting our way back to doing it properly. we began to lose the paths to walk in. None calls for justice, verse 4, nor any pleads for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. Hirelings do that. And it is not just in the church, it's in our whole society. And we have imbibed too much of this society. That's why he says, get out of Babylon. Break the yoke from off your neck. That's the first reason for fasting. They hatch adder's eggs. Now, if we were a chicken, a hen, we would normally sit on eggs and hope 
that if we had sat there long enough, we would hatch little chicks. But God says the church and the nation have been sitting on the wrong kind of eggs. We've been sitting on snake eggs. We are producing a generation of vipers, as Christ said the Pharisees were. They hatch snake eggs and weave the spider's web. What do we have today? A world wide web. And contained on that web are hundreds of thousands of sites where sin is being disseminated. It doesn't mean that we should not use the internet. We even call it a net and a web. A net with web sites. And you can get tangled up in that to the point you can't accomplish anything spiritually. Even if you only go to good websites that have good information and surf the web day in and day out, even looking for good stuff, what happens? You utilize time doing that that should have been devoted to God and to his people and his purposes so it all becomes vanity even though it might have been good stuff. Some people are absolutely addicted to the internet today just as they have become addicted to television and were to radio some time back. So we're sitting on eggs that are going to bring forth snakes. And we have the type of web that is going to tangle us up. He that eats of their eggs dies. They're poison. And that which is crushed breaks out into a viper. Step on these eggs and snakes come out. Their web shall not become garments. God tells us to put on holy, righteous garments. And the webs that man is creating through sin and through wrong focus are not suitable to wear. They will not gain us salvation. Neither shall they cover themselves with their works. We must have works, but they need to be the right works or they won't cover us. By grace are you saved through faith. That out of yourselves comes through Christ. But we're created unto good works. They have to be the kind of works that are worth wearing. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to, sh feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting and destruction are in their paths. What we are accomplishing in the church is leaving nothing but wasting and destruction behind, right? Do you see building? Do you see putting together? Do you see peace and accomplishment and purpose and working together in love and joy happening in the church today? Or in the nation, for that matter, because this is always dual. No, we see destruction and misery and a continuing to tear down. 
and more and more people giving up and quitting. That's what we see in the church today. So whatever we're doing, it isn't working for us. Right? Something has to change. The way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goes therein shall not know peace. They don't know the way to peace. God says he'll bring peace in the latter temple, Haggai 2, verse 9. I want to be in it. I want to be part of it. Verse 9. Therefore, or as a result, therefore is judgment far from us, neither does justice overtake us, we wait for light, but behold, darkness or obscurity, seeing through a glass darkly, for brightness, but we walk in darkness. We're looking for the light. Where's the light at the end of the tunnel and all the problems in the church and in the nation? It just gets gloomier and gloomier, doesn't it? Read the news. The whole world hates us, and we're trying to patch things up, and now we're making rumblings about how Iran needs to be attacked. And we're denying that we're going to do it, which is one of the first signs that you're going to do it. The plot grows thicker, and it's getting worse and worse in the church, as more and more give up and do not endure to the end and do not overcome and grow, but slip further and further away. We're looking for blessing. We're looking for God's answer. And all we see is darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes, blind leading the blind, and they're all falling in the ditch. We're not to be blind. We're to be the children of light. Where are you going to find light, brethren? This book. Overall, the church of God is not studying this book very much. They're going to church as they did in Worldwide, where they went to sleep, woke up enough to change pews, sat down and went right back to sleep in other organizations, and are not diligently seeking God's will and way and purpose and focus in this book. They're just not doing it. There are some few who are. I hope we can be counted among those few. This needs to be our focus and our attention. God doesn't want us stumbling around in, in the dark. He wants us to be walking in the light. And in the light and the blessing of his face. But we are in the position as a church and as a nation where God has turned his face from us, can't bear to look at us, and will not hear or answer our prayers. I want that resolved. I want God to look down at me and us and smile and say, I'll do that. I want to be able to know his will so thoroughly that I can get on my knees and lift my hands to him and say, Father, I know your will, 
and your will is this, please do it, and know it will happen. I want to reach that point. God wants us to reach that point. He wants to look down and smile and be pleased. And Anthrus, as a father does a little child. And when he asks a fish, not give him a scorpion. He wants to give us the fish. He's been giving us the scorpion. Because we've been disobedient, rebellious children. I want the fish. There's something I have learned in life, and that is that if I want fish, I must go fishing. If I want to eat meat, I must go hunting. Sitting at home in my warm chair does not catch me any fish or bring any venison to the table. If we want fish from God, we had best get busy fishing. And this is the fishing hole, this book. Where are we learning the things that we are learning? This book. Where did we get the food that we are in the, currently in the process of sending out? It came out of this book. Good stuff, isn't it? Christ performed a miracle of the fishes where he increased and multiplied the number of fishes. Is that lost upon us? If we will go fishing and if we will find fish and catch those fish, God is willing to multiply those to others. We must go fishing. It doesn't do any good to dream of fish. I have sat in hunting camp and seen hunters coming back in and they're telling all their stories about how the day went, how they got lost, how they couldn't get up the mountain, how they fell in the creek. I only wanted to hear one thing. Are we eating tonight or not? Their stories might have been interesting, but I was hungry, and I wanted fresh meat. Now let's cut to the bottom line. Are we eating or are we not eating? God has provided food here, but you have to dig it out. You have to work for it. He may point you in the right direction if you look, but he expects you to dig it out. We have to dig it out of his word. That is what most of the church is not doing, and that's one reason we've been groping blindly and not finding the right answers. Those who would go on about preaching the gospel to the world are not getting very far with it. It's having very, very pitifully small fruit. They're not catching many fish. Why? I'm here to tell you they are not operating according to God's will and purpose for right now. He has already called as many, except for a few at the last hour, 
that he needs to fill out the 144,000. Now he is choosing which of those he is called will be in his kingdom. Many are called, few are chosen. Our focus today should be, and I don't mean just you and me, but the whole church, should be an understanding of what God's will and purpose is. And when we try to do something on our own, and it doesn't fit his will, and nothing happens, we should reconsider and stick our head back in the book and say, God must not be doing this. Well, then what is he doing? If the calling is essentially done, then the choosing must be in process. So the focus should be on helping people get chosen. Chosen last never worked on the playground very well for you or for me, and not being chosen at all really hurts. I want to be chosen. I want you to be chosen. And there are a lot of people out there who will be chosen if they get the right information and are fed spiritually and grow and overcome. We can be a help in that. If we quit wandering around groping for the wall in blindness and darkness, wake up. We grope for the wall like the blind, verse 10, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. We roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there is not. For salvation, but it is far off from us. Don't we hear people roaring and screaming about things that have gone wrong, how they've been treated wrong? They roar and growl like bears about the mistreatment that has occurred. And on the other hand, they sit around and mourn like doves. You know how a mourning dove sounds. Ever lay in bed in the morning and listen to a dove cooing and mourning? Very mournful, melancholy, sad sound that a dove has. That's the way the church sounds today. This language fits us so very well. Verse 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. Sounds like Psalm 51 with David, doesn't it? For our transgressions are with us and as for our iniquities, we know them. Aren't we honestly, if we will admit it, pretty aware of what our problems are? We know our sins, don't we? We're honest with ourselves. In transgressing and lying against the Lord, hypocrisy fits in that. We say we'll do this, but we do that. We say we'll obey you, but we don't. That's a lie. That's what, they That's what happened back in the Old Covenant, Deuteronomy. He set before them good and evil, life and death. And they chose death rather than life. We utter from the heart words of falsehood. We say one thing and do another. We will to do, 
The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. God is not going to have those in his kingdom who wanted to overcome. Those who tried to overcome. He is going to have in his kingdom those who overcome. Trying isn't good enough. Wishing you were overcoming isn't good enough. Telling God you're going to isn't good enough. It becomes a lie and hypocrisy if you don't do it. Verse 14, judgment is turned away backward and justice stands far off, for truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. The truth of God is falling more and more and more in the street, being abandoned, walked off from. Yes, truth fails, and he that departs from evil makes himself a prey. Don't we leave ourselves open for persecution? for criticism when we try to depart from the way the world and the church is doing things? Don't we make ourselves a target if we really do try to overcome and grow? The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no judgment. And when he looked down, what did he see? Verse 16, and he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. God looked at this mess down here and he said, nobody's standing up for the truth. Jeremiah puts it, no one is valiant for the truth. I think it's about chapter 9. Therefore his arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. Paul quoted this in Ephesians 6. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. God is going to do something and he's going to do it with all his might. Stand back. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries. Recompense to his enemies. To the coastlines he will pay recompense. That's where most of the people live. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Now God is going to set his hand to do something about the miserable mess we have. He is calling out a people today to help him. He is going to bring two witnesses forward, and they will have others with them to do a work at the end of a final warning, but first of all, of putting the church back together and giving oil, restoring the paths to walk in, if you will, to the church. That is going to happen. God will work, but he will do part of that work through men. You and I have opportunity to be a part of that work if we will get in line with what God wants done so that when he designates that leadership and we see it, we will go help. When is the enemy going to come in like a flood? Well, for one thing, we know that when Satan is cast down in Revelation 12, he will send an army as a flood after his people who will have to flee for their very lives. And God will swallow up that flood. 
So this context is speaking of Revelation 12, and it's speaking of Zechariah 3 and 4, because God says that when we get the temple rebuilt, he will set Zerubbabel as a standard, a flag bearer for what God is doing. So he's going to do that. God will lift the standard against him. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and to them that turn from the transgression in Jacob, says the Eternal. Well, God's going to do it, but he's going to use men as instruments, as he always had, or always has, to help. Verse 21, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Eternal. My spirit that is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, nor out of the mouth of your seed, nor out of the mouth of, the, of your seed's seed, says the Eternal, from henceforth and forever. Once God builds the latter temple through the two witnesses and those that he stirs to come from afar and build it, once he turns his face back to us here at the end time, it will never turn away from us again. He which has begun a good work in you will perform it. I think that's in Romans. God's word does not return to him void. He will accomplish something with it. Now he's projecting forward into the kingdom of God here, chapter 59 and 60 in the millennium, but it begins with a people at the end turning from their sins, being clothed in righteousness, and performing a great work for God right at the end. Now doesn't he say the glory of the latter temple will far outshine the glory of the former temple in the book of Haggai? Let's read on. Chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Eternal is risen upon you. That's in Handel's Messiah. He used that one to great uh, purpose in, in the Messiah. I believe that God inspired Handel's Messiah to be written. There is an absolute message there for the church today. Incredible music using the words of God. We are to rise and shine now. Isn't that an expression that we use? I remember my grandfather coming in about the time the sun came up and it was time for the cows to be milked. And I didn't want to hear it, but often he would say, rise and shine. It's what God's telling us now. Get up and get to work. He wants us to be a light on a hill. He wants us to be a light to the world. He's told us we must be that in the Sermon on the Mount. And Isaiah said it as well, long before Christ said it when he walked the earth, because he inspired Isaiah to write it about the end-time church. He tells the end-time church, rise and shine, for your light is come. God is going to turn his face back to those who do choose to obey. And his face will shine on us if we are part of that number. 
When, when is he talking about? When the enemy will come in as a flood. That's prophesied to happen very shortly now. This is the time frame. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth. Isn't spiritual darkness pretty well enveloping the earth today? In gross darkness, the people. But the Lord shall rise upon you. It's not talking about the millennium yet, really. <coughs> because the earth is still dark. At the period of time this is talking about. It says, His light will shine upon you, and His glory shall be seen upon you. And the Gentiles shall come to your life, and kings to the brightness of your rising. I think this is dual. Not only will God begin to shine His face on us, and He'll bless His end-time work as the latter temple is built, because that is His will. And that being His will, He will bless it. <clears throat> But at the same time, this verse projects forward to when we rise off the earth, the resurrection. The Gentiles will come to our rising. They'll say, man, what's going on here? Those people just floated up in the air. They went up in the clouds. They're gone. That'll make news. They'll send the cameras to our rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. All they gather themselves together. They come to you. Your son shall come from far and your daughter shall be nursed at your side. Again, I believe it's dual. There is an awakening at the end where the remnant of God's faithful people begin to come where they see God's blessing. They begin to see God's face shining there. They begin to see healings. They begin to see God working on this earth. And they are the ones who come. I find it encouraging because many of us have sons and daughters who grew up in the church but have left. And I believe many of them will come running when, God, when they see that these things we have talked about are actually happening. And they will have enough background understanding to know they better get their little buns there. Your son shall come from far and your daughter shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see, not be blind and groping and wandering and stagging around anymore. Then you'll see and flow together and your heart shall fear. You'll come with a certain hope, a certain excitement, a certain emotion that maybe God really is doing something finally. And yet you'll have a certain fear there too. Because Almighty God is taking a hand, and that's scary. So there's an awe and a fear and yet at the same time, excitement. Your heart will fear and it will be enlarged. Your heart will just open up because you see God's hand. We are closed today in the church, aren't we, pretty much? God says your heart will be enlarged, opened up. 
Because the abundance of the sea shall be converted to you, the peoples will begin to come. It's a beginning at the end with the latter temple. And then once Christ actually comes to the earth with the, with the holy city, it will expand to all peoples. It has to start with us. And if it is not done, he says he will come and smite the earth with the curse. Moses and Elijah must appear. That will start it. And from there it will spread ultimately around the world. But it has to start with God's chosen at the end. You have opportunity today to react and be one of those who are chosen. <coughs> the multitude of camels shall cover you, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all they from Sheba shall come. He says it's going to be to the point that it's, you're going to have camels all around you because people will be coming from far. They'll bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kadar shall be gathered together to, to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar. Acceptance on God's altar. Isn't that something we would like to see? And I will glorify the house of my glory. Now, he is going to glorify it in part on this earth in the latter temple, and then he is going to glorify it before the whole world in the millennium. The house of his glory is his church, his temple. Who are these that fly as a cloud and as the doves to their windows? Surely the coasts of the isles shall wait for me and the ships of Tarshish first to bring your sons from far their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. He's going to start with a certain glory on this earth, and then he's going to glorify us and turn us into spirit beings, and we'll be here to rule the entire earth, and everyone will come and bring their riches, hoping to imbibe of the blessing of God, because they will see God's blessing coming to us. And the sons of strangers shall build up your walls, and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I smote you. Isn't he smiting us now? Yes, he is. He's scattering us and smiting us out of anger that we have not been attentive to him. But when we repent, when we turn around, when we fast and pray the way we ought to and do the work of God as he wants it done, he will have mercy on us. In my wrath I smote you, but in my favor have I had mercy on you. Not because we deserved it, but because he will extend mercy. Therefore your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night. Now this is projecting right on into the millennium that men may bring unto you the forces of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought. For the nations and kingdoms that will not serve you shall perish. Yes, those nations shall be utterly wasted. 
The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the fir tree, the pine tree, and the box elder together. <laughs> Remember in Isaiah 41 it talks about the seven churches, or the seven trees God will plant in the wilderness. I think equivalent of the seven churches in the end time, a remnant from all of them will come together. It's using the same analogy here. I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons also of them that afflicted you shall come bending to you. There are other scriptures that we could tie in here. I won't for sake of time, but we will at that time be worthy of worship because we'll be God. And all they that despised you shall bow themselves down at the soles of your feet. The end of Zechariah says it will walk the soles of our feet over the ashes of the wicked. But there will others come who will bend and bow. And they shall call you, speaking still to the church here, they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Here's the first glimpse in Isaiah, and it increases as it goes on now to chapter 66, all through, <coughs> and begins to show that the new heavens and the new earth will come at the beginning of the millennium. They're not after the earth has been charred as we formerly believed. Revelation 21 ties in beautifully from here on through the, book of, the rest of the book of Isaiah. The holy city will come down. We are that holy city. They'll call us the holy city. It has 144,000. I won't get into that now for sake of time, but it's in the series on how exclusive is the church. And it is quite an eye-opener to understand that the Father and the Son will be dwelling on the earth in the millennium in the holy city, and we comprise or are called the holy city. Christ isn't going to come and rule out of a boxcar. He's going to rule the earth in glory. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated. He's showing the contrast. They'll come and worship after we have been forsaken and hated. So that no man went through you. No one would come to us. I will make you an eternal excellency, a joy of many generations. You shall also suck the milk of the Gentiles, and you shall suck the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Eternal, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. When God does this, there will be no question who is in charge. There will be no question in our minds that he is God. Moses' God is God, Pharaoh was purported to have said. Of course, Hollywood did that because Pharaoh didn't say anything of the kind. Pharaoh was drowned. For brass I will bring gold, and for iron I will bring silver, and for wood, brass, and for stones, iron. You see, all these things that have been worthless that we've had, we're suddenly going to be turned to the greatest of riches. I will make your officers peace and your exactors righteousness. Those who would rule over us will be peaceful and righteous instead of hirelings who are sucking the cream and fouling the water for everyone else. 
Violence shall no more be heard in your land, wasting nor destruction within your borders. Wouldn't it be nice to be absolutely safe anywhere you went? Not have to worry at all. Not ever have to lock a lock. Not ever have to hide. Not ever have to worry. No danger. Your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord shall be unto you an everlasting light in your God, your glory. Doesn't that sound like Revelation 21? Your sun shall no more go down, neither shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord shall be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. No more mourning like doves or roaring like bears. Utter, total peace and safety. Your people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Didn't he tell us in Ezekiel 17 that once Herbert Armstrong had built something in Babylon and someone else had come along and shaken his hand and said, I will do as you did and walk in your steps and then lied and broke that covenant and led the church back into Babylon, didn't at the end of that chapter God say, I will take a tender branch, and I will plant my planting. That's what he's going to do. He's going to plant it right here at the end, and it's going to grow and grow until it covers the whole earth. The work of my hands that I may be glorified. If we will glorify God in our lives, He will glorify Himself by giving us His glory. And it's going to impress the whole world. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in His time. He has a time plan for all this. We're getting very close to it. If we will endure and if we will grow and overcome, all these promises will be ours.